0: And go to Matthew 1, uh, Matthew 2, from 1 to 23. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born of the Jews, been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, Are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time this star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me the word that I Two may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when he rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. And he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Giza, Egypt, and saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who saw the child's life are dead. Henry rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the Lord of the, the, the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Marcos. So as we've been going through Advent, we've been looking at uh, obviously the traditional Christmas story through the the narrative in Matthew and Luke and we've been looking at different characters of the story and looking at it through their lens um, and so and then basically trying to encounter how does the peace of God come to us through the lens of these characters and their stories and today's story is different than the last couple. There's a few characters in the story that Marcos just read, and you might say, well, he's, Pastor Stephen's going to go the way of the wise men this morning and talk about that. And I'm not, unfortunately. I've decided instead to go with King Herod and Herod's plan of what he wanted to do when he heard about the birth of Jesus. And so therefore, what we're encountering this morning is evil in and of itself, because in previous weeks, we looked at Mary and Joseph and how they were filled with an anxious, anxious uncertainty when the birth of Jesus was announced to them. Or the week before, then the next week, we looked at the shepherds and how they were filled with great fear about the birth of Jesus being announced to them. So what do we do when we're afraid? Today, it's a little bit more sadistic. It's what do we do when evil itself presses in? on the birth of Jesus or on living a life of faithfulness to Jesus today the reality of evil in our world because that's what Matthew 2 really culminates in is this crazy psychotic king murdering children across the region because he was threatened by the prophecy of a newborn king in Israel that's evil it's evil and everybody could acknowledge that it's evil So how do we find the peace of God for us in the midst of evil itself, in the midst of the evil that we encounter and that we confront in our own world here in this life today? So that's the direction we're going. I'm gonna give you just a couple of points. I've kind of titled them this way. The first point is um, a sneaky yet obvious reality. So we're gonna talk about that. The second point is a monumental task in front of us. And then number three is a better story. A sneaky yet obvious reality, a monumental task, and a better story. So first, what's the sneaky yet obvious reality? The sneaky yet obvious reality is that there's a whole lot of evil in our world. So that's really obvious if you take a look around. But it also has a way of being sneaky as well. Like we know there's evil in the world; it can be pretty blunt and right in front of us, but it also has a way of kind of falling to the side whenever we uh, try to live out our daily lives and so let's let's kind of talk about this a little bit before we go deeper into our text today um, Firstly, I would say that there's there's things like murder or rape or awful things that are just blatantly explicitly evil things that if I were to say that's evil, like I just did, rape is evil, murder is evil. If I say that in a room like this, no one's gonna get up and throw tomatoes at me. It's explicitly evil. It's bad. We live in a world where there's bad, explicit, wicked evilness all around us. Or at least in front of us on the TV or on the radio or on our on our screens that we can get access to the things happening all around the world. I mean, just obviously Israel and Gaza and, and what Hamas has been doing in Israel—that's blatantly wicked. What they are doing to real people. So you're not going to throw tomatoes at me for things like that. Um, Matthew 24 in the scriptures, Jesus actually kind of lays out what the end of the world is going to look like. And he he talks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and people treating each other terribly. He says that's those are the things that are going to happen as the world begins to come towards its end. And so therefore, people take that text and look around the world today and say, well, I see some of those things happening. Like we gotta be getting close. And again, we don't know when the end of the world is. And I'm not here to be a prophet to predict that for you. I'm not in the interest of that at all. But I am in the interest of saying that it's okay to call a spade a spade and to call evil evil. There's explicit evil all around us. That being said... There's another level of evil that I could call debated evil, which are things that we do not all agree upon as evil. And these are what causes war. One nation says something's evil, another nation says it's fine. And so there's debates and they get really upset and emotional and they fight one another about it. And you've seen this story spin over and over throughout human history. And, I mean, it comes down to even your type of government, you know, communism versus democracy or dictatorship versus whatever. Like, this is how debated evil happens. There's gray areas regarding freedoms of choice that people make or things that they should or should not be able to do. And it turns into debated evil. And that's where tomatoes do start getting thrown at people or worse. And then there's an area of evil that you could even say is one level below that. Now, I would call it disguised evil. Things that are evil, but they don't look like evil when you first look at them. Things that appear to be good to us even, but are actually wicked and displaced in our world and actually lead us down a really bad path. And notice I'm being very careful not to give explicit examples because things like this can lead us on rabbit trails quickly, but it's just to say that in a world like ours with so much information available, there are many things that are disguised as good that are actually rottening our souls and are actually for our, our bad intent. Philippians chapter 2 verse 15 describes our world as a crooked and twisted generation. And this was 2,000 years ago, but Living in a sinful world means that even good things can be twisted and distorted for poor intentions. Galatians 1.4 describes our, our present age, again, in that time as well, co- talks about it as our present evil age. And, and this is where we get introduced to the reality of, of Satan himself. You know, the, the Bible does talk about Satan from beginning to end, you know, from the Garden of Eden, all the way up to the end of the Bible in revelation and all the way in the middle, throughout the story of Israel and throughout the time of Jesus. Jesus encounters Satan himself in the desert in the wilderness. But the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 describes Satan this way. He says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So there's the word disguise that I've introduced. Sometimes things that even first appear as light are actually a masquerade for something that's really wicked and something that can actually tear us up from the inside out. And there's even one more level of evil that we need to address. You know, so we've gone from explicit, like everybody agrees this is bad, to then let's get to the heart of the matter, which is the evil that's within us. When you are by yourself and you're thinking your own thoughts evil or wicked things even creep into our own heart or our own mind or our own consciousness. Things that are hidden inside of us that fortunately most of us are able to suppress those things and not actually act upon them. But sometimes we do. But even if we don't, they're still in us. There's something rotten inside of us that gets into us and begins to twist our heart and our, our motivations. And again, the scriptures talk about this throughout the, the Bible. Um, I'll just mention one place, you know, after after um, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and after they saw their children sin and then one of them murder the other one, um, talk about not being able to hold your wickedness in. Uh, it says in, in Genesis chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And then listen to this. He says, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention was only evil continually. That's really harsh, really to the point, from the Lord Himself right from the beginning. And it's pointing to what the power of sin or rebellion against God's good way has on us right from the very beginning is that evil doesn't just remain out there. It actually gets inside of us quickly. So evil then, as I've just alluded to, starts from the beginning of rebellion. Whenever you choose to consciously do something that's against the good, perfect way of God that he introduced for the world. And unfortunately for us, we live in a world where we are, we are surrounded by that to where it's inescapable. That the way of God is so covered up by the reality of sin around us, born inside of us, that we live into that reality too. That most of our thoughts are wicked and it's continual and it's a cycle that we can't get ourselves out of. And so we end up believing Satan's lies just like the earliest humans did, Adam and Eve. We fall into that same trap of of evil and lies and sin. And so I was, I actually, um, I was at a a Christian conference recently and they were giving out a bunch of free books. Um, They had a huge table of free books and most of them were, you know, um, like just as white as this piece of paper with big, like shiny, um, like beautiful covers. And they were talking about positive things, which I'm, I'm all for reading positive, bright, good books about Christian theology. And I will get to that in this sermon, I promise. But then there was one book on this table that was black with red writing and kind of sadistic looking. And I said, what is that book sitting over in that corner? And it's a book that's written by an author that I know who's a respected author and very good. And I've read the book since and it's a good book. But the title of the book is The Gospel According to Satan. And it's a Christian theologian saying these are eight lies that Satan really wants the world to believe and to live into. And he's written a book saying, this is how explicit we need to be here to say that there is a counter gospel in the world. And it's a gospel that is not for your good. It may come across as okay or for your own good, but it actually leads you down a path of destruction. And it's a, it's a blunt explicit book, but it, it is helpful in one sense if it gets you to the crux of, wow. Okay. There is a path in this world that is not for my good. And so that's the blunt, sneaky reality that we have in the world, that there is evil in our world and it lives even in us. So point number two, there's a monumental task then that each of us has to learn to live in. And that's learning how to live in a world that's full of evil. Learning how to live as a person who is full of evil even. So again, if we're honest enough today, which again, I'm not gonna blame you if you got a little defensive when I said all of us have evil within us. If that strikes you as harsh or abrupt this morning, that's okay. Just um, You you can let that fall to the side for today and you can can kind of process that on your own or discern that on your own as you read scripture or pray. Um, But we all can at least agree on the evil that we see in the world. And so how do we learn to live in a world with evil? And then how do we even learn to acknowledge it in us uh, through humility? It's a monumental task. Another way to put it is you could say it's a, it's a Herculean task, which um, that led me down the rabbit hole of Hercules himself. A couple of months ago, I used this example, and I'm going to bring it up again. The story of the, the Greek mythology of the story of Hercules, um, which again, I mentioned this a few months ago, but it's fascinating because if you put Hercules next to the person of Jesus, for instance, on the surface level, there's a lot of similarities. You have this son of God. Hercules was the son of Zeus, the the Greek uh, mythology's primary God. Hercules was his son. He was a mortal, but he was a man who was strong and was capable of doing heroic things. But right from the beginning, Hercules um, made a a big mess up. He was led astray um, by someone. He ended up turning on his own family and murdering his own family, according to the mythology. And so Hercules was so guilty and heartbroken by his mistake that he tracked down Apollo, who was the God of truth in Greek mythology and the God of healing. And he begged to be punished for what he had done. And, and so Apollos made this deal with Hercules that if he does these 12 labors, if he goes to this 12, 12 step process, of going through these each of these 12 tasks, then he could be restored and be allowed to be immortal again. And so again, I'd encourage you at some point just to look up the 12 labors that he does because they're they're wild. I don't have time to read all of them to you. I'll read a, a couple of them just to give you an idea. The first thing he has to do is he has to go to, he goes to the hills of Nemea to kill a lion that was terrorizing the people of this region. Hercules trapped the lion in its cave and strangled it. For the rest of his life, Hercules wore the animal's pelt as a cloak. The second thing he does, this will be the last one, and then you can look up the other 10 yourself. The second thing that Hercules did was he traveled to the city of Alerna to slay the nine-headed Hydra, a poisonous snake-like creature who lived underwater, guarding the entrance to the underworld. And then he does that, and he, yeah, just goes on with his tasks. So he, he accomplishes all 12 of these tasks. So Hercules... Strong Hercules completes all these tasks and he he wins back his freedom. Great, good for you, Hercules. Like you accomplished the task. You're a strong, mighty hero. And yet the story ends by Hercules being poisoned and being so full of suffering that he actually buries, like he builds his own grave and buries himself in it and dies. That's the end of Hercules' story. That's the end of it. So anyway, As we think about Hercules and we think about our own life, sometimes the battle of evil or the monumental task of living in a world with evil around us feels like we're we're being asked to enter into something like Hercules is asked to do. Like overcoming something in ourselves that we messed up on. So feeling contrite and then trying to find a way to overcome it. And then having to do these ridiculously hard tasks of, of things we're asked to do just to get back to baseline. And then even with the fear of maybe we'll just get poisoned and die anyway. It's a really sad end to the story. It's sad. It's a tragedy, really. So if it's a Herculean task like that, what do we do? And again, it comes back to the reality that evil cannot primarily be something out there. It has to be recognized as something about us inwardly as well taking a look at the heart of individual humans first. Psalm 36 says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart when there is no fear of God before his eyes. So we, we talked last week a little bit about, you know, the fear of the Lord and how that's the one proper fear that we are to have in life is this holy, reverent, humble status before a merciful and holy God. But if you, take that out and we're living in our own way, all we, all we, see is the transgressions of ourselves speaking to the wickedness of our heart and just reinforcing the depths of depravity that we're in. Theologian N.T. Wright puts it maybe more bluntly this way. He says, the line between good and evil runs not between us and them, but right down the middle of each of us. Nevertheless, as another theologian of the 19th century said, St. John of Kronstadt, he said this. He said, even as we acknowledge the evil that's within us, he says this, never confuse the person formed in the image of God with the evil that is in him. Because evil is but a chance misfortune, an illness, a devilish reverie. But the very essence of the person is the image of God. And this remains in him despite every disfigurement. So as we acknowledge the evil that's within us, that it runs, that's what divides right between the middle of us first, good and evil, runs right through the middle of us. Even as we acknowledge that, may we also look at ourselves and look at others and say, but we were made in the image of God, and that remains, even though there is a disfigurement of evil within us. So just a couple of questions within, within this point, then, of how do we take on this monumental task? And for, for this, I want to spend the rest of our time in Romans 16, which is printed in your bulletin. So this is, this is where we're going to start getting practical here for how do we, how do we find the peace of God in the midst of an evil world, in the midst of the evil that's in us. Romans 16, verses 19 to 20 says this. It says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I think as we walk into this monumental task of evil, um, here's three questions that I think we have to arrive at an answer for, whether you're a Christian or not. First question is, who do we obey in our world? Obey the pattern of the world is one option. So obey those that are in authority over you or obey the common pattern of culture that you see around us. Or as the book of Romans says, implores us here to be obedient to God, which Paul is encouraging the Roman church here. He's saying, he's like, your obedience is known. I see your obedience here. Really the the aim of all Christian discipleship and the aim of all good churches should be the encouraging to be obedient to the living God, learning to love obedience because it's good for us, not because it's a dull, tiresome task of following rules, but actually learning to love obeying God above all else. So that's the first question that we have to arrive at in our own heart. Who do we obey? Second question from Romans 16 is, where do we find wisdom as we live in this world? You see, Romans 16, 19 says to be wise as to what is good. Well, how do we know what is good? How are we supposed to find the wisdom to understand what goodness is in the world? How do we understand what is right in the world? How do we understand what is noble or pure in the world? Where is, like, you need wisdom to understand what is. what are all those things. The third question I'll ask you is also from verse 19. How do we stay innocent in a world where there's so much evil around us. So again, one of the hard parts about living in an evil world where there's wickedness around us is we can fall into that same evil ourselves, into that same wickedness ourselves. So how do we keep ourselves innocent in a guilty world? Paul says in in verse 19, to be innocent as to what is evil. Well, that sounds a whole lot easier said than done as well. How do we keep ourselves from falling prey to the evil in our world? 1 Peter five eight encourages Christians to be sober-minded, to be watchful because your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's true. It's true that there is an antagonist, Satan in the world, who's trying to lead you astray, who's trying to keep you from being innocent. So how do you remain innocent in a world full of ways uh, to lead you into guilt. So those three questions, who do we obey? Where do we find wisdom? How do we stay innocent? The only way humanity can, can overcome evil collectively in our world is if we agree on those three answers together. So if we could get all 8 billion of us to agree on the answer to those three questions, we'd be in really good shape. So let's try to do that, right? That's a big, talk about a monumental task. That's the Herculean task before us. So point number three, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better story. There must be a better story, and thank God there is. The better story is that in verse 20, we are introduced to the fact that there is a decisive defeat that is ensuring a future day where there is no evil. None. There's a decisive defeat in the future that's going to ensure that one day there is no evil. On the front of your bulletin, there's a quote from St. Augustine which I know I'm, I'm quoting St. Augustine a lot during Advent, but why not? He's a, he's a, he's a wise thinker from the third century. And St. Augustine said this, he said, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to allow no evil at all. So somehow there's a better story being written through the story of evil in our world than there ever could have been if evil just was not part of the story at all that God is writing a better story through it. This is a stunning statement that Augustine is claiming here, that there's a better story being written through evil than if evil had not been allowed to enter into it all. And let me just be careful here. That does not mean that God is the author of evil. That doesn't mean that evil was part of his plan. That doesn't mean that he was intending evil to happen. But the reality is that evil was allowed to enter into our existence at all shows that God is all-wise and is all-knowing, must have known something better could have come from this than we could all imagine. If we're trusting that he is the answer to the wisdom question, then that means the fact that there's evil and badness and wickedness around us, that must mean that there must be a point to it. That must mean that there must be goodness that could come from it. It must mean that there is a plan for a deeper peace that we can learn even through wickedness. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent and said, we are going to listen to this rebellious voice and not trust what God told us. And they brought calamity into the world. And yet right after that, in the very next chapter, God is judging the serpent, Satan himself. He's judging the serpent and he says this in Genesis 3.15, he says, serpent, I'm going to put enmity or strife between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. But he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And if you track that promise of that, there's going to be one from the offspring of Adam and Eve, who's going to come and bruise the head of the serpent and whose heel the serpent is going to nip and you track that story all the way through the scriptures, you're led to the cross of Jesus. You're led straight to the climactic point in all history where on the cross, the serpent of the garden is nipping at the heel of Jesus and killing Jesus through his venom, through the sins of the whole world placed on him. And yet, little did the serpent know that at that very same time, the way you crush a serpent is by crushing its head. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross in one decisive blow. And Satan did not see that coming. And so, as Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's a couple of really, really wonderful assurances that we can take with us during the season of Advent. As we look at the birth of Jesus and look ahead to his second coming, we, we cling on to a couple of things. And one of the things is this, is that the outcome is already decided. The game has already been played. The end is written. The serpent is already defeated. On the cross, the head of the serpent was crushed. It's over in that sense. And you may say, well, it's not over, over, because I'm still experiencing evil and there's still terrible things happening in the world. Well, yes, I understand that. But let me give you this illustration as someone who is, who's not a, an expert chess player, but someone who has heard this explanation used before. In the game of chess, the goal is to, to take out the queen, right? And so you play out the game, you have the moves, and you get to a certain point in the game where the game's over, the queen is going to be overtaken, and the game's over, but the other person can still make some moves on the board. They can go this way, and go that way, but they're in what's called check if you play chess. They're in what's called check, meaning that the game is over even though there's still a few simple moves to be made. And as, as one person taught me, that's the reality of God and Satan in the world right now is that Satan is cornered, the game is over, he cannot escape, he's been crushed, but he's still playing out his minimal moves just to keep the game going because he's that malicious, because he's that evil, because he delights to try to lead people astray as much as he can. But the reality of Romans 16:20 is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Listen to the irony of that statement, that the peace that we all long for in the world comes through the most violent crushing you can imagine. And yet it's the most violent crushing that we all long for. The crushing of evil itself. The crushing of the antagonist that all of us are experiencing. God, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He is victorious over evil only through peace. Peace is what crushes evil. God is the author of peace. He's the God of peace. And that's how evil is destroyed. And he does it under your feet. Who is the your there? The your is the church. He's going to crush evil and lay evil at your feet so that it is submitted to you. It is defeated under you so that the church will reign victorious throughout the ages. Jesus said to Peter when he established the church, he says, I'm going to build my rock on you. The church will not be overtaken by evil. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church, he said. And this is what he means. The defeat of Satan is already certain. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, right? I mean, that's grace. That is the grace of the Lord that's with us, is that the battle has already been won for us. And the church's faithfulness and obedience that we talked about earlier is simply the way that evil is crushed. We bring about peace by emulating the peace of Jesus, by being obedient to walk as he walked, not by fighting evil in the way that evil is fought, not by seeking revenge. Even in the news this week, you saw combating evil in a certain way. And it's like, okay, sure. But ultimately the only way peace comes is through the peacemaking of Jesus himself and the faithfulness of the church to walk as he walked. So how is evil defeated and overcome? Is it by tearing down Satan's statues? Is it by seeking revenge? By speaking ill in public against those who are different? Or is it through faith in the Son of God, the God of peace, who gives us reconciliation with God the Father through himself? So who do we obey? We obey the one whom God the Father at the Transfiguration said, listen to him, listen to Jesus. Where do we find wisdom? We find wisdom from the one in whom 1 Corinthians 1, it says, uh, the stumbling block to the Jews and the folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Jesus himself. And how do we stay innocent We stay innocent through the one who's given himself for us. Knowing that we can't keep ourselves innocent in a wicked, sinful, broken world. That we fall prey to the same sins as everybody else. But that we were called in him before the foundation of the world. As it says in Ephesians 1, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And as Jude 24 says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the one that we look to to keep us innocent. Not to ourselves, not to anything we can accomplish, but to the grace of the Lord Jesus himself. So that's the story. Is that we live in the hope in this Advent season of the in-between of the cross cross killing and crushing Satan finally, that death no longer has any dominion over us, that the sting of death is gone because Jesus rose from the dead. And yet Satan is playing out his final moves here in this in-between time, but there's a certain day, there's a day coming, the second advent, where the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet forever. And that's what the beautiful story in Revelation 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 tells as we await that day when peace reigns supreme. So stay faithful, stay obedient to the one who's given you all things in Jesus and take heart for he has overcome the world. So let me close us in prayer. And as, as before I pray, I just wanna introduce uh, the song Joy to the World because again, these, these Advent Christmas hymns are just filled with rich, powerful lyrics. And there's some lyrics in this hymn that talk about the decisive victory of Jesus for us. And so I just encourage you when those lyrics come just to take heart and to cling uh, to the truth that we're gonna sing in just a moment. But for now, let me pray a closing prayer for us as we uh, walk away from this text and into our lives. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, as we come to this place this morning and find refuge in your word and find truth in our time of need, uh, I pray that this would settle softly on each of our souls, that the questions that are emerging now, that we would, we would have safe places to go and ask those questions, um, but that we would also be uh, overtaken by the power of the promise of God crushing evil and longing for that hope. So help us to live in that certain hope as we walk away from church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.